Hello, I'm Tyler Wall, and this is the second episode of the Missionary District Podcast. With me is Amos Martell. <laughs> That's me, Deacon Amos. <laughs> we like to call him Deacon Amos. So, this is our second episode. What are we going to talk about today? Yeah, okay, well, last time we asked the question... What is in the groundwater? And we tried uh, to acknowledge two things. First of all, that we all have a bias. We all have a particular set of beliefs that influences the way that we view the world. And secondly, that we're not always aware of the content of those beliefs. And in this episode, uh, we're going to try and, you know, uh, continue that conversation and try to provide some definition for what it is that actually makes a society secular. And in particular, we're going to talk about the separation of public and private life. And then I think we're going to jump back into the metaphysical question and see if we can't start to put some language to the assumed beliefs that are present in our world. Yeah, I, I really like the, the groundwater analogy. It's, it's really good. I just like that we don't know necessarily what's in our groundwater. So I'm, I'm really interested in this, in this episode. So I'll let you go. Sure. Yeah, before we uh, get into that conversation, I just wanted to mention, too, uh, that we're, we're entering into a discussion here where we're talking about some of the effects that secularism has had on us and on our world. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that secularism is worse uh, than any other system that the world has to offer uh, or anything like that. In fact, uh, there's so much in secularism that has been adopted or adapted from Christianity that there's probably good reasons for us to prefer secularism over many other systems. Um, I actually read a book uh, recently by Tom Holland. I don't know if you've heard of, of him or of, of the book Dominion. And This uh, isn't Spider-Man Tom Holland, is no, it? No, it's a different different Tom Holland. Okay, yeah, yeah. just making sure. <laughs> <laughs> but he wrote a book called Dominion, just tracing uh, Christianity through history to, to show that the roots of our secular society— uh, are Christian, that, that there's so much mm-hmm. in our roots, in our groundwater that, that comes from Christianity. Much of the language coming from the Bible, uh, King James version of the Bible, a lot of uh, common phrases come from that. Certainly, yeah. And uh, a lot of our beliefs and values, uh, even though society in general is maybe not aware of it, are still actually rooted in the beliefs and values of, of Christianity. And so where people would try to depart from those things now, they don't realize that they're departing from their foundation to, to quite that degree, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyways, we're going to talk about um, secularism pretty critically um, because we do want to see those points where, where it does conflict with Christianity. As much as there is uh, convergence on some things, there's also uh, a lot of points of tension and points of uh, even outright conflict. And so those are the things that we're trying to talk about and to identify. So, again, is, is secularism worse than any other philosophical system that the world has to offer? Uh, I don't think it, it necessarily is. I think it's probably even preferable most of the time. But it's still a system of the world, and there are significant points of tension between any worldly system and the kingdom of God. So what is secularism? Uh, Let's jump into that question. Probably one of the first things that comes to mind for most of us is the idea of the separation of church and state 
as a primary indicator of a secular society. And so maybe it's good to start there and even to hold that up as the defining marker of what it is that makes a society secular. The, the separation of church and state, or perhaps uh, to state the point more generally, the, the clean delineation of a public sphere and a private sphere, uh, a public sphere of mutually agreed upon ideals and beliefs, even if they're not consciously agreed upon, and a private sphere that's more interior and personal and where a large range of beliefs is allowable. This would be like a, similar to wearing different hats in different, in different instances. Yeah, perhaps, yeah, a compartmentalization yeah. of life. Yeah. yeah, like at work I act a certain way, at home I act a different way. Right. Yeah. Um, those would both be examples of life in the private sphere. Um, actually, you work you work at a college, so yeah. there's maybe some gray areas there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but like our education system, our government, uh, our media, those sorts of things, uh, at least corporate media, like large corporate media would be examples of the kinds of communication avenues that we see in, in the public sphere. I believe they call that legacy media now. Okay, legacy media, yeah. sure. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, what, whatever happens in your home and in your uh, own personal business uh, is sort of, that's up to you, and there's no policy around that, and you can believe whatever you want and sort of do whatever you want within limits. Right. Mind your business is where the phrase comes from. <laughs> Go on. Yeah. In some ways, this separation of public and private life is a Christian concept. And I think there's at least two reasons that we might connect this to Christianity. Uh, first of all, we see it uh, in the scriptures, at least sort of in seed form. Uh, when some people asked Jesus whether it was lawful to pay taxes, he responded by saying, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. And so the idea that we might have both worldly and religious authorities isn't new. Uh, but what was, what was so striking about Jesus's words is that typically a nation had a shared religion and their leader was an authorized representative of that religion. And so the Roman emperor was a type of God in the Roman Empire. But Jesus is being asked about whether Jews should pay taxes to Caesar. And for us, that's a no-brainer, right? Of course you pay taxes because your priests probably aren't going to build roads for you and whatever else it is that our taxes pay for. Uh, but this was a valid question. And the issue here is, should they pay taxes to a political leader who doesn't share their religious convictions and who isn't a divine or holy figure according to Jewish belief? And Jesus, of course, says that they should. And so we have in the scriptures at least a theoretical separation of church and state, even though it's really nothing like what we have today, right? Like the, the state that they were paying taxes to was still a very deeply religious state. Uh, but it, we, we can at least see the seeds for the idea there. Yeah, you know, it, it's clear that there's boundaries, right? right? Yeah, and uh, there's boundaries for, and I think it goes through it pretty well in the Bible, uh, giving those boundaries out to where, how far the government can go. Like, what, what can it impose upon us as Christians? And at what point do we then say no? And the other way around, right? The governments are there, like you said, build roads. Yeah. Uh, and the, yeah, the church isn't going out there to build roads or anything like that. So there's an infrastructure 
idea there where the government is fulfilling a role as defined by God right. in the scripture. And I find, I find that very interesting, that whole concept. And so I'll just let you keep going there. Right. And then as you say, like, there are some clearly defined limits even in the scriptures where, like in the book of Acts, when, when they're told not to preach anymore, they're like, no, we can't do that. We're going to keep preaching and yeah. you can imprison us and beat us if you want to, but we have to keep doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the second reason we might be able to connect this to Christian belief uh, is simply because Christianity is explicitly not nationalistic and uh, actually aims at the conversion of the entire world. And so if the belief structures are going to be maintained across, you know, all of these vastly different cultural expressions around the world and through time, then there has to be some way to cleanly distinguish between the content of the religious beliefs of Christianity and the beliefs that are held by whatever culture that we happen to find ourselves in. And so I think it stands to reason then that, that when Christians are in the minority, that we're concerned to clearly define and protect our belief structures in the face of whatever the dominant culture happens to be. Uh, but then also when Christianity becomes the dominant culture, that same sort of perspective is allowed to be infused into society as a whole. And so in some ways, secularism, at least in how we've defined it so far as the, the separation between public and private life, is something that we should expect, particularly in cultures that are predominantly Christian, which is why it's so prevalent in, in the West. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it actually remains to be seen whether or not secularism is even compatible uh, against another background. Yeah, and, and that brings up like questions in my head about, um, so is Christianity then superimposed over top of the culture that allows it to exist? Uh, at what point does Christianity become the culture that exists where other things are superimposed on it? And I think you could, we could probably deep dive into that if we really wanted to. And I think, yeah, the, the West, there's that's probably been the closest version of Christianity where it has been the dominant culture and other things have been superimposed onto it, other cultural views. Um, but yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to sidetrack this whole thing with, with that kind of question. Cause I'm sure we could talk for an hour on that. <laughs> yeah. We could go pretty deep into that. I think Yeah, yeah. <laughs> starting with the conversion of Constantine and well, going I, through, I mean, all of history is, and even, even the mindset of, well, if God is God, if you superimpose Christianity over a belief system, at what point does God just say, well, I'm just, this is my culture now. And then, <laughs> and then like the conversion of Constantine, obviously a, a God-ordained moment in time that he allowed. So it's kind of a, <laughs> so many questions in this. But <laughs> again, let's not get too into the weeds. Yeah. Yeah, and all that to say too, that there's really um, always been a sort of commingling of religion and politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, even today, the official head of the Church of England is the queen. And so even after the Reformation, Anglicanism still believed that the monarch was a divinely appointed figure, at least in some sense, and possibly even a divinely appointed representative of God to the people. But in any case, I think most people would agree that that this is a marker and perhaps uh, the primary marker of secular society, a society in which there is a public sphere and a private sphere. And so when we when we're talking about what is secularism and what is secular ideology, we're really talking about what it is that is allowed 
to exist and to flourish in the public sphere um, among all of those things that are mutually agreed upon. There are several different historical narratives that try to explain the rise of secularism, and I thought it might be helpful just to touch on uh, what we might call the pop culture perspective, because this is probably the thing that most of us uh, encounter the most. And I think it reveals some of the underlying assumptions or uh, metaphysical beliefs that exist in the public sphere. And so there's this one perspective on history that tends to really follow the trajectory of the Enlightenment and uh, the elevation of reason. It really values uh, reason and the growth of the academy um, and knowledge and things like that. And, and people who particularly focus on the empirical sciences. And if you hear somebody say something like, you know, we used to think that it was God who made it rain, but then we discovered the water cycle and there's just no need to insert God into that process. This is the sort of meta narrative that they are describing. They want to view history primarily as scientific progress, uh, kind of like as our knowledge of the world expands, God keeps getting pushed farther and farther into the margins. Sometimes people will call that uh, the God of the gaps. And the perception is that Christians are just trying to slip God into the cracks in our understanding as if the utility uh, or maybe the value of any belief is only measurable by its explanatory power of physical phenomenon. Now, there's a whole lot going on there that we will probably return to at some point. Uh, but as it pertains to our discussion right now, this view of history as scientific progress views secular society as a culmination of a process of human discovery and innovation. Uh, we were pretty stupid, now we're getting pretty smart, and we've just dropped all of the metaphysical mumbo-jumbo that we used to rely on for explanatory power. And one thing that I think is really important to see is that this view is essentially just taking our current secular worldview and laying it back on top of history in order to interpret history. And I think it results in a pretty shallow understanding. It's kind of like using the sunglasses you're wearing to investigate the sunglasses you're wearing. <laughs> yeah, something like that, yeah. <laughs> or the, le the lenses of the sunglasses you're wearing to, to evaluate the frames of your sunglasses. Right, yeah. And it's kind of hard to, to look retrospectively in that way. Yeah. Yeah, just because our like our primary interest as a society is in like scientific advancement, um, we can't assume that that's true of all people in all times. Yeah. Uh, but that's that's what this viewpoint uh, would do. If you're viewing history as scientific progress, then you're you're viewing everything through that lens, and 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 understanding people through that lens to the point where you're placing that uh, ideology, that framework, on their minds, mm -hmm. uh, even though it it wasn't actually there. And you're studying the Bible. You're, you're getting your master's. And you're learning. Can you, can you speak a little bit to how when people read the Bible today, when they're studying the Bible, how that's actually happening when they're reading the Bible? Oh, goodness. <laughs> Just that this idea of, well, I'm reading the Bible with our current uh, secular worldview, or even our, just our worldview today, and applying it to the Jews uh, five to 10,000 years ago? Yeah, that's a big question. Uh, I think I probably actually want to do a whole episode on biblical interpretation, but just briefly. Wait, you have to interpret the Bible? 
<laughs> I think so. Okay, yeah. Okay. Um, I think by well, default we interpret any anything that yeah. that we consume. Yeah, and, but it to say that it happens though, right? Like yeah. we read the Bible a lot of times with our own frame of of reference. We're 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 splashing groundwater all over our Bible before we actually read it. Yeah. So to speak. Yeah, I mean to give one example, when you read in the Gospels about all the demoniacs that you know Jesus cast demons out of. Nowadays, we consider pretty much all of that to be mental illness. Like mm-hmm. even in the church, demons are hardly acknowledged, um, and and certainly it wouldn't be the first thing that we go to. And so, even reading reading back in the Gospels about that, we we either think, boy, the world is a lot different now than it was then, or we think Jesus was healing them of mental illness, and they just thought it was demons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of in, imposing our own worldview onto that, and, right? And uh, yeah, and that can sometimes be problematic because then we're forgetting, like back then they had a much higher view of the supernatural world. I mean, it's all through the the Old Testament and New Testament, just this this other reality that exists that overlaps with physical reality and and how one interacts with the other and and can influence one another. Yeah. Yeah, and so. Is it right to do that now, or isn't it? I don't know. An- another episode, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, if Jesus said he's casting out demons, I believe he's casting out demons. Well, that's where I'm going to go, too. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and it's mental just, illness doesn't jump to a pig either, does it? It probably doesn't, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, uh, I mean, it's really clear how even just our worldview makes us suspicious of the Bible immediately in, in those sorts of examples, right? And, you know, to go back to that example of uh, we used to call on God for rain, but then uh, we discovered the water cycle. When our ancient ancestors called upon God for rain, it wasn't purely because they were ignorant of the water cycle uh, or looking for a way to explain rain. Like, that's us viewing them through this uh, ideology of history as scientific progress. But religious belief has never been solely about utility or explanatory power. It's, it's about much more than that. It's much deeper than that. Um, but effectively, what this uh, meta-narrative would do is, is adopt the ontology or the metaphysics of the empirical sciences into the public sphere. Now, let me explain that for a minute, because okay, that was please. a loaded sentence. Uh, <laughs> empirical science is uh, built upon something that we call methodological naturalism, which means essentially that for the sake of scientific investigation— we assume a naturalistic worldview. We, we assume that there is nothing beyond the physical, natural world that is going to uh, act on our experiments or corrupt our data or anything like that. The universe as we know it is a closed system, although we might make allowances for things like the multiverse or extra dimensions uh, or whatever. Our understanding of the universe can expand on a horizontal plane mm-hmm. by adding more natural laws or more natural phenomenon but it can't expand on the vertical plane. It can't allow for something like God to intervene in the normal course of events. And that that is uh, the the starting assumption of the empirical sciences. So naturalism is an a priori assumption of empirical science. It's just built into the system. And that's perfectly fine. And it has served us really well. Uh, And it doesn't for a second mean that science is anti-God. But what has happened is that people have forgotten that that assumption of naturalism is built into the the metaphysical outlook of the sciences. It's been 
so long. And because of its position in the public sphere, science is treated as objective and philosophically neutral. There's a perceived neutrality that comes with the public sphere because it's the stuff we all agree on. Is it? Is it? Well, no, this is what we're saying, is yeah, that okay. it's, 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 there's actually a latent belief in naturalism mm-hmm. uh, that's there in the public sphere. And so uh, the New Atheist Movement, uh, for example, which is a really good personification of secularism, starts from empirical science and tries to conclude philosophical naturalism. Um, that's this whole science disproves religion narrative that we hear all the time. But you can't conclude that naturalism is true when your starting assumption was that naturalism is true. Right. If you're starting, if you if you're starting with methodological naturalism, you can't uh, prove philosophical naturalism. It just doesn't work. Yeah. No. But that is uh, essentially what has happened, and not just in the new atheist movement, but over the last few hundred years, the the tremendous success of empirical science has led to the the widespread adoption of the metaphysical belief of naturalism. So not not just methodology, not just for practical purposes and experiments and things like that, but actually a a philosophical belief that people are holding, which is, of course, outside of the purview of science. But it has allowed for that belief to become the default position of the public sphere. Yeah, I think one one of the things that that I've heard of recently is consciousness, that science can't really—it hasn't moved in its scientific knowledge in thousands of years. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and like what they knew thousands of years ago about consciousness is what they know today and they don't know anything else. So empirically, they know very little and it makes a lot of scientists uncomfortable that, does, they, yeah. that, that they haven't learned that much. And, and even, even with that, they, they don't really know much about consciousness, but it's our consciousness that actually enables scientific discovery to happen. Right. And so, I don't know, that makes me ask a lot of questions about <laughs> about the whole premise. <laughs> but <laughs> certainly, yeah. Yeah, consciousness is a hard problem for the worldview of naturalism. Because on, on naturalism there there really can't be such a thing as free will, for example. Mm-hmm. Right? Every, everything's just a a brain state that just happens to be and it produces, you know, these thoughts in you. Mm-hmm. But there's really no control over it. Yeah. It's a difficult problem. It is. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, all that to say uh, that that the ontology of secularism, of the public sphere of secular societies, is largely built upon this philosophical naturalism. It, it kind of slipped from methodology to philosophy. And so there's this latent belief in the groundwater of secularism that there's nothing that exists beyond what we can see and hear and touch and feel. And of course, I mean that in an extended sense. It's not just that we can see things with our eyes, uh, but also with instruments or even theoretical instruments. Everything that exists, exists within the closed system of the universe. And another consequence of this is that we inherently believe that things can only exist in one way. And that's really important. That's called uh, univocity or a univocal model of being, that there's only one way that something can be said to exist. And uh, I won't get too far into that now because we're going to spend a lot of time on it later. But this is really vitally important to understand when we start talking about the incarnation or the sacraments or miracles or time and eternity, uh, even things like meaning and value. The impact of that belief is really far reaching. 
I, I do this thing with my son uh, at bedtime where uh, I got this from Deacon Dave. I stole this from him. He told me about it. He's like, you got to do this with your kid at bedtime at this age because okay, it's it? just so fun. Um, and I'll, I'll be tucking him in and uh, he'll ask me sometimes, what did you see today, Dad? Because he kind of knows the routine. And uh, I'll, I'll start telling him a story. I'll be like, while well, I was walking you know, down the street and I, I looked up in the sky and I saw something there and I didn't know what it was. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. It, I thought, I thought at first that it was a leaf and, you know, but as it got closer, I realized that, that it wasn't a leaf. And so I, j- I kept walking and I kept watching it and then it got closer and closer and he starts shaking at this point cause he's just so excited <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it got closer and closer and I realized that it was the flattener and then i just jump on him and squish him and he just laughs his head off and he loves it <laughs> that's awesome yeah I, I um have, i have so many of those games i play with the kids <laughs> my kids are at this point are just like okay dad good yeah <laughs> like stop telling me stories <laughs> yeah well my son's three and so he still loves it and he thinks that's i'm the good. funniest guy in the world so that, that's helpful for me that's good. well it goes till six at least <laughs> my six-year-old daughter feels the same way that's awesome my nine-year-old son he's kind of weighing his options at this point <laughs> <laughs> you're funny dad but <laughs> um anyways the reason i told that is because um one way that i think is really helpful to think about secularism is as a metaphysical flattening it's like a the metaphysical flattener things that were previously thought of as transcendent uh, are rejected or reimagined within the framework of naturalism, uh, or or we might say imminence. That's maybe a better word for it. Everything must be imminent. It must be in the here and now, or it doesn't exist at all. Everything exists in the same way. Our worldview just requires us to flatten everything down onto the same plane of existence. Uh, when Charles Taylor describes the worldview of secularism. Charles Taylor wrote uh, a book called A Secular Age, which is like the textbook that you want to read on this stuff. Uh, But when he describes the worldview of secularism, he talks about it in terms of what he calls the imminent frame. And so where once the world was infused with mystery and transcendence and where the cosmos were enchanted and we actively sought out the providence of God and we were fearfully aware of demonic activity around us and and saw spiritual causes behind the ordinary events of life. We've discarded all that. We've discarded the transcendent and the spiritual, and we reinterpret those spiritual causes and forces through the frame of imminence. So secularism is a metaphysical flattening. It rejects the transcendent and reduces everything down to the same plane of existence. You know, which is really interesting because I think what we're seeing in the last 15 years is the naturalists realizing the with everything that we've discovered and all the information and and, and all that stuff that naturalism and science has has discovered they're realizing there's these some some of these answers can't be answered with science mm-hmm. and so they come up with with theories scientific theories to help explain well this shouldn't actually be happening so how can we explain it and like one of those things is called simulation theory. Have you heard of this? Uh, I think so, yeah. Yeah, so simulation theory is basically that we're actually living in a simulation. Right. And the evidences that they give of this is that, well, look at video games 20 years ago and the graphics and look at them today. 
and the realism that they're that they're pushing. If they can do that in 20 years, well, it's not far to believe that we're actually. I, I actually saw one person describe simulation theory, and if you took out the words simulation and replaced it with God, they would be describing a religion. Right. <laughs> and actually, they would be describing Christianity. And I found it just fascinating. I'm like, they don't actually hear what they're saying. <laughs> right. Yeah, anyway, yeah. It, it's yeah, like they're it's, grasping at the beyond, right? It at the, is, at yeah. the other that God is. It's yeah. those things that you're talking about here that they can't, that they're trying to do away with, but they're realizing, oh, we actually need those things right. to help us explain things. And so, but we, we've rejected one thing and so we can't bring it back. So we just need to, with the model that we have now, we have to make everything fit. And so they're make, trying to make it fit with like sledgehammers and... Right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, can you give us a summary of it? Because we went through a lot of stuff. Would you be able to give us a summary on that? Sure, yeah. Um, so a secular society is one which has a public sphere and a private sphere. And for the sake of simplicity at this point, we could just say that the public sphere contains all of the beliefs that we can mutually agree upon as a society and the private sphere is everything that we might disagree on. And at an ontological level, this results in a sort of metaphysical flattening where naturalism is adopted as the default worldview of the public sphere, and anything transcendent, or really anything which would contradict naturalism, is denied or at least reimagined through the framework of imminence. Right, and that would be like we just described in that... uh simulation theory is right just you know we're going to reject that but you know we want we want to do do it our way that sounds really familiar i feel like there's like the, maybe in the first couple of books of the bible <laughs> there is something about you know trying to do it uh, my own way yeah somebody might have done something eating an apple or something like that i don't know <laughs> thanks amos this was a great episode thank you tyler and uh if anyone has questions or comments we'd love to hear from you uh missionarydistrict at gmail.com Absolutely. If you have any questions, shoot them our way.